All right, so we're going through a series that is returning back to remind us of our original mission and vision as a, of a church while we do what we do because we've been going on now for seven and a half years roughly. We've had a lot of new folks come in. But if you're new here, you're just visiting or whatever, I hope that this will be super applicable and meaningful to you as well. We've got a lot of scripture that we're going to read this morning. And then the sermon, you know, we're going to touch on some of these. If, you're, if you were here in a normal sermon in a normal series, we would be really going through each of the verses closely, but, but we're going to launch from these into talking today about our disciple identity. So I've, I've studied and listened to many new things even on this this week, and one thing somebody said, it's kind of like when you're, when I don't know if it does it anymore, but you know, when you're updating your iTunes and every now and then or something on Apple, you have Apple stuff, you'll get this thing that says, here's the terms and conditions if you wish to continue to do this and you need to agree to it, and then you click on it, and it's what, like 40 pages of stuff? And so what do you do? Yeah, you don't read it, right? Most of you don't read it. Some of you may read it, but you're just like, I want iTunes, I'm going to agree to it. It didn't mess me up the first time I agreed to it, so it shouldn't mess me up this time. And so what we're going to be thinking about today when we think about discipleship and what it means to be Jesus' followers is we're going to go back and we're going to actually read the terms and conditions. Okay, not just like, yeah, I want to be a part of a church. Right, but what, is it, what does it mean to, to hear the call of Jesus and to not just click okay with our fingers, but to say yes with our hearts? And so if you would stand with me, we're going to stand in reverence to the Holy Word of God, and we're going to read Luke 9, 23 through 10 2. It'll be a little longer than normal, But hey, we're going to read the 40 pages. Here we go. Beginning in verse 23. And he said to all, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is only my child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, 
and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (sighs) But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we hear the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated and let's pray. We ask you, Jesus, to disciple us now. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to shine the spotlight on the good news, the kingdom of your your Christ, our Lord Jesus. We need your help and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Early on in, in our journey of, of 
thinking about what it would be like to be a church that centers on actually being disciples of Jesus and the stuff of everyday life. Before this church was even a thought, there was a training that I attended once, and it was a, a training done by someone who had done international church planning, and then it came back here to, to somewhere in small town North Carolina to try to do the same, to apply the same principles of making disciples and planning churches overseas as that would be done here in the United States to see if it could be done. And, and he discovered it could be done if you basically just took the same approach, the same passion, the same focus, the same intentionality, which is a big if, right, for Americans, because we want to go to church, right? But if you go overseas as a missionary, you actually try to be the church. And one of the things he said that, that just struck me at the time, but I, it just didn't sit right with me, is he said, if you go out and you begin to, to call people to follow Jesus and you begin to make disciples, he said, you need to really take your time before you bring them to your church. He said, you need to be really careful about that. This could totally disrupt the whole process. Now, now I've received a lot of theological education and know about the importance of the local church, right? And one being the body of Christ. And so I was like, this can't be right. Why, why is this man saying these things? This is a bad example. This is bad teaching. And then all of a sudden, I, it, it just hit me that like, at the same time, I agree with him. Because I, I know what it's like to go out and share the gospel and to speak about what it means to be the people of God and to follow Jesus. And then you can bring them into a church setting and all of a sudden they're like, oh, you don't have to do all that stuff. I mean, just imagine taking someone through the Gospel of Luke, just through the passage that we've read this morning, and they've never been to church before. And you're saying, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they're like, oh, wow. That is weighty. That is a big call. This sounds like this is going to take me reorienting my life. Like, this is a real commitment. And then they walk into the, the average church, and they're in awe. They're like, oh, my goodness. Look at all these people who are doing that. Look at all these people who love Jesus more than all earthly ambitions. Look at all these people who've said Jesus is better than money. Jesus, look at, look at all these people in the religious South who, man, based on what I've read, they don't worship their biological families as the center of the whole universe. Can you believe it? They, they wouldn't worship... Look at all these kids who, whose lives don't revolve around sports. Look at all these, these parents whose lives don't revolve around moving up the ladder in the world. All sometimes, right? He will hold before us this way of life. And so often what we can do is we can forget that our primary role as the beloved, chosen, redeemed children of God is to be to grow as and to make disciples of Jesus. And Jesus wants us to believe that that is actually good news for our lives. Many people, when Jesus gives the call to discipleship in the Gospels, what do they do? They hang their heads and walk away because they think Jesus is saying, I want to ruin your fun. I want to ruin your goals. I want to take away the things that make your life have meaning. 
And so what we've done in many cases is we've hung our head and we've walked away and we've said, but we still want to be a church. And in so many places in the religious South in particular, churches have simply become holding tanks for consumer Christians. And this is why so many people who want to be disciples, they have to go to the nonprofit world, they have to go to a seminary, they have to go do something else, right? The church is looked at as the place where, all right, that's the place where people who check off, I don't want to be a disciple, I just want to be a Christian. But in the New Testament, there's no distinction between Christians and disciples. It's just what they were called. And so as one person said, many people haven't rejected Christianity because they've studied it and found it unbelievably untrue. It's because they've met Christians and found it to be utterly trivial. Okay, you believe in Jesus and one day you'll go to heaven. Yeah, I'll take that. But it doesn't really seem to change anything else. Again, uh, this pastor said it's not because they find it untrue, it's, it's because they find it trivial. And so we're like the classic Vince Lombardi Green Bay Packers where he said to his team that lost as he sought to to rebuild them, he's like, to these professional athletes, this is a football. Right? So that's kind of what we're trying to do in this series. It's what we're especially going to try to do this morning the best we can in the time we have around this issue of discipleship. This is a disciple. And we all have to humble ourselves to keep going back to that point. Because our Lord, our coach, our rabbi comes to us today in this text to say, this is a disciple. This is discipleship. And can you imagine going to your coach and saying, coach, I want to be on this team, but I don't want you to make me do anything hard. And he's like, you are going to be begging me to not have to run one more wind sprint. But I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I'm not here to torture you. I'm here to train you to be the person that you were created to be. So we must accept that we are called to live our lives, our whole lives as a whole church, wholly in the identity of being disciples of Jesus. We're going to riff off of these two passages, the Great Commission and Luke chapter 9 today, and I flipped them upside down. So I did this for the sake of this sermon's flow. I hope you'll forgive me. So we're going to go from the back to the forward. And so, uh, Kaylee, do your best. But Luke 57 through 62, the first thing we're called to see here is that if we're going to live out this sermon identity is we've got to embrace the priority of following Jesus. Embrace it as a priority. We notice in these texts that people are coming to follow Jesus here at the end of this, in verses 57 through 62. And Jesus is calling them to put Him first. But what we see from the Great Commission and how it ends, again, going in reverse this morning, what does He tell them? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is not calling us to this prioritized path of discipleship and leaving us alone. That is, He's not standing back like an evaluator. He's not standing back to grade us to say, I've given you something really hard to do, now go compete. No, He's saying, I am with you. 
Everything that I call you to, I will accompany you with. He begins the Great Commission with His authority and He ends it with His presence. And as we think of all these things that He's calling these people to in this particular text, in verse 57, to make Him a priority over financial security shelter, to make Him a priority in verses 59 over biological, family, cultural expectations, to make Him a priority over these long farewells. And we could study all of these texts. Jesus is not saying don't love your families. He, he gets onto the Pharisees at one point for, for, for not loving their mothers and fathers well. Jesus from the cross loves His mama well and makes sure He's taken care of. He's poking at each one of these people's excuses so that they can leave the door open so if something happens, they have an escape hatch. Right? Go bury your own dead. Likely, we don't even know that this guy's father wasn't dead yet. What he's saying is, I want to go back and once I make sure all that's taken care of, Jesus, then I'll come follow you. Let me go say goodbye. In this day and age, farewells weren't just like goodbye. It was a long process. It was a long party. These people are coming to Jesus and saying, I'll follow you, but, and I'll follow you if. And Jesus is saying there's no ifs, ands, or buts at the foundation of the fundamental of following me. And when Jesus tells us that He gives us His presence in all of the sacrifices of prioritizing our discipleship, He's only calling us to something He's already first did for us. He came and had no home. He told His Father goodbye and came and became human. He went to a cross so that we might know forgiveness, healing, and deliverance. He is simply calling us to follow Him in the path that He first walked for us. As He says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. This is at the heart of discipleship. It's the heart of Jesus being our teacher, of us being His students. Now this isn't always cookie cutter. If you guys don't realize it, some of what we talk about in our church, even as discipleship, can be highly controversial. There's some who would say the way that Jesus made disciples is not a model we should follow today. It's called the, the Christ model. And it, there's, there's people who say that that was for a specific place and a specific time for a specific set of people who were going to be the apostles and founders of the church. And that's why I even emphasized in my reading of Luke chapter 9, are these calls simply to these apostles? No, they're a call to all. They're a call to a crowd. Jesus seems to emphasize the word anyone. There's some also who would even say that the Great Commission is not given to all disciples, but is only given to these foundational leaders. But if you go read in the book of Acts, we see that it continues and continues to use this language of disciples. I believe in the New Testament some 268 times. This is what people who are known as Christians are called. And the word Christian just came along sort of as, a, as an application of disciple because it means a little Christ. This is someone who's so prioritized and fashioned their life around Jesus that they begin to look like Him. And this took place in churches. 
The apostles were called to go and make disciples. And as I heard someone say this week, what did they do? They went and planted churches. Because churches were not to be places where consumer Christians came and got a religious fix and went on about their way. It was to be a place, an outpost of the kingdom where people were engaged in a life of discipleship. Benji was one of my good friends growing up. He's a pastor now. He won't ever listen to this. He was a professional smart aleck. And he was five years older than me. And so, you know, when you're growing up, somebody five years older than you is just old enough, right, that you think they're cool. Again, he won't listen to this. Probably nobody else was thinking he was cool anywhere else. But I thought he was. And he had this awesome ball card collection, and so it made me want to get into to, to collecting cards. And he was ripping me off left and right, but I just thought it was cool that I was getting to hang out with him. Tom Gordon, rated rookie. Nobody even knows who Tom Gordon is. I traded him my Barry Sanders rookie card for anyway it's a whole nother deal but I I was around him right and I remember one day my mom saying why are you talking like Benji and I'm like I'm not talking like him what do you mean she's like your voice starting to sound like him and your mannerisms are starting to be like him I didn't even know it you know why I was because I spent a lot of time around him and I looked up to him. And I prioritized it. Did, did Benji have a plan of discipleship? No. Just a life that was largely centered around being around this person and looking up to them made me actually start to intonate the tone of my voice in a way that was observable to other people. You see, at the heart of what it means to be a disciple is this prioritization of the presence of Jesus in our life. You see, first of all, disciple is our identity. It's not our activity. It's who we are. I heard someone else say, and I've said this before, is many of us will have this kind of bitter stance of like, nobody ever discipled me. Or, what are you going to do to disciple me? And in our minds, I've had this happen even here in this church, I thought you were going to disciple me. And what are people thinking? They're thinking, I'm going to sit down with somebody and have a one-on-one relationship over a year or a two-year period of time. That's not bad. But, but that's more like mentorship. Right? We come to a discipleship and, we, and we, if we're not careful what we do and we don't start with the identity is we put the onus on everybody else, right? How is this church going to disciple me? How are you going to disciple me? And we don't realize it, but we brought a consumerism even into our discipleship where we want goods and services and we need somebody to deliver it. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about how we have a plan of discipleship and how those things are good. But we've got to call time out and stop and say, disciple is our identity first. And who are we disciples of? Jesus, not Matthew's Table Church, not your fight club leader, not your MC leader, not your favorite podcast preacher, Jesus. Disciple identity begins with a prioritization of the presence of Jesus in your life. 
And until we own that, we really are not going to benefit from these other disciple-making ventures we're going to talk to. Until He's the one that we want to become like. To, to As it said, God said in the presence of Moses and Elijah. So imagine that Moses and Elijah, one's your fight club leader. If you don't know that, that's, these are things we'll tell you about later. I don't have time. Fight club leader. And Elijah's your missional community leader. And they're standing there. And what does the Father say? Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Yeah, go read about Moses and Elijah. Learn from them. But we listen to Jesus. A disciple is a student, a follower. And I love this word that many people have used. An apprentice. An apprentice. Uh, in, in, in these times that Jesus lived in, these rabbis, these teachers would have had students. They were called disciples. And they would have followed them wherever they went. And they would have tried to watch them in such a way that they, that they shadowed their lives after them. And there were a few ways that this happened that I want to go over here. Part of the reason why I reversed this is so I can go over this stuff and if I don't get to the rest, this wouldn't have been the last point. What they did was they prioritized being with. So if we were to go to Mark, when Jesus first calls the disciples, it actually says He called them to be with Him. So the process, being a disciple, the process of discipleship includes these things. And the, and the first is being with Jesus. It's got to be a priority in our life. Alone and with others. But let's just stop. A lot of us grew up, a lot of y'all are young, but a lot of us grew up with a quiet time. And then at some point along the way, we might have got too cool for the quiet time. And we kind of look back on our upbringing and because it was a part of a whole lot of other maybe weird youth group stuff, we were like, I don't want to do any of that. Well, newsflash, Jesus had a quiet time. Whatever you want to call it. He went away to the Father, into the quiet, and He spent time alone in silence and solitude with the Lord. A quiet time is a good thing. Call it whatever you want. I usually say personal communion now because I don't want to say quiet time. But have you a place and have you a plan to be in the presence of God alone and make that a priority in your life? Tell people in your, your realms of relationship, I'm doing this. I'm doing it at this time. I need you to help support me in that. It's very important. We could talk a lot about what that looks like, but we, we just don't have time this morning. The next thing, not only do we want to be with Jesus as a disciple would, a rabbi, but we want to, we want to learn from Him. That is, we want to be taught all that He has to teach us. Okay, Jesus not only, when He called His disciples, He said, call and come and learn from Me. And He talked about taking His yoke. Well, a, a, a rabbi's yoke would have been a ra His teaching too, like come and learn My way of life. So this means that teaching is important. Alright, we're called in the Great Commission to learn, teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Okay, so we've got to be careful. Some of us have grown up in super heady intellectual circles and we can't swing the pendulum so far to the other side that we're like, we don't need to have learning. It's just we're learning to live. All right, We want to teach to obey. 
but we've got to teach. We need to know the Sermon on the Mount, just as an example. That'd be great for everybody to memorize. We need to care about things like theology, about doctrine. It matters. It has consequences. It's not the whole piece, but it's important. So be with Jesus. Learn from Him. Come up with a way in your life. Again, we have so many, so many ways we can do this now. Right? You don't got to be like I was in high school and go to the Christian bookstore, if those even exist anymore, right? And just hope you get a good one. You know, you, lots of materials and resources we can give you. Lots of great technology out there. So be with Jesus. Prioritize being with Him. Prioritize learning from Him. But learn to obey, which leads to this, these next two, and that is to become like Him. In the Gospels, Jesus says, again, a student with his rabbi will begin to become like Him. This is, this is so important. I've known many people who have had devotionals, quiet times, and lots of head knowledge, but they didn't actually seek to become like Jesus. You might could just go to the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So what, what are we trying to do? Well, I want to be like Jesus. What does that mean? How will I know if a disciple is made? How will I know if I'm growing as a disciple? Well, is there more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control rising up in my life? Now, how do we do that? Just so you know, the fruit of the Spirit are not commands, they're fruits. That is, you don't go and say, I want to be more patient today. Just go try that and see how it works. Right? I'm going to be a more kind person. We mistakenly think that if we just try harder, we're going to change. We don't need to try harder. We need to trust in the gospel and we need to train harder. Right? There's a big difference in trying harder and training harder. Right? We remember, as quote Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We trust. I'm not going to earn, but I'm going to engage in spiritual disciplines that help me grow. I'm going to train myself to do what I cannot do directly. So if I want to be more patient, guess what I might need to do? I might need to fast. I might need to intentionally make myself hangry. Over and over again. And depend on the Lord. We can do every spiritual discipline. But those things are for the sake of training. Right? You've got to train yourself. Nobody in here would say, I'm going to go bench press 225 pounds right now. Right? Some of you can do that. 400, whatever it is. Let's say you're like, right now, I'm going to go do that. What's going to happen? You're going to collapse your chest and maybe die. Right? Just go, if you get, hey, friends, let, you know, spot me. They, they break it for you, bam! Right? What are you going to do? You're going to go to somebody, or YouTube, or whatever, and you're going to say, I'm just going to start with the bar. Some of you in here might think, I will never stop, I could never be a patient person. I could never be kind. I could never be gentle. I could never be faithful. The Spirit of God lives in you. You can grow in it. But don't go try and just do it all right now. But have a plan, right? This is discipleship. How am I going to become like Jesus? 
Not just know more about Him, but become more like Him. So prioritize being with Him. Prioritize learning all He taught. Prioritize becoming like Him. And prioritize doing what He did. Read through passages like this and you see Jesus just, He's doing all kinds of stuff, right? He, he prays for people to be healed. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time I did that? Do you know He wants you to do that? What if they're not healed? Okay. We trust that into the Lord's hands. Right? Read the Gospels. What did Jesus do? And go do, go do it. See how it goes. And let Him train you in it. We'll get to this in this next point, but just to go ahead and get there. This, this is what we mean when we talk about our missional communities being disciple-making spaces. I'm really getting ahead of myself. But, but sometimes people have heard us say things like, we don't wanna, we're not a Bible study. It means not a Bible study only. Right? We want to study the Bible. We just want to actually practice it too. Like, many of us probably grew up in, in church context where you would study the book of James and you would read about loving widows and orphans and you would hear an epic sermon on it, right? And everybody's crying and thinking about the plight of orphans and widows in the world. And then what happens? Nothing happens. And next week you go hear James 2 sermon. And then James 2, what is James 2 about? Making sure that Rich people aren't given preferential treatment in the church over poor people. Oh, and everybody's crying. You tell a story about Grandpa giving his last check from work to somebody poor, right? And you're, you're, you're stirred, you're learned, you're, and, then, and then what happens? Nothing happens, and you come back next week. And then you do James 3, and it talks about how people use their tongue to hurt people, and they gossip, and how it, a small sets a blaze of fire, and everybody feels so convicted, and, and they're like, oh my, and then what happens? Nothing happens, and then you come back for James 4, and I won't just keep going. But such often has been the life of the church. I think we in the religious South have some kind of weird complex where we want to come and hear sermons where people just make us feel horrible. And then, and then we're like, I'm sorry, and then they preach the gospel at us, and we all under our breath pray the sinner's prayer again, just hoping we're still saved. And, and we just get some sort of sick pleasure out of that. That I'm not quite sure is really the Holy Spirit. Maybe Jesus wants us to receive the gospel and say, I've empowered you to live this stuff. Leads us to the second point. Going in reverse. So we embrace our disciple identity by prioritizing the presence of Jesus in our lives. But the way that we do this, as we're touching already, is we embrace our disciple identity by practicing it in missional fellowship. Or, if you like the word, community. In the Great Commission, guess what all of the verbs are in their... That's not a tense. But anyway, Cassie can correct me later. And thanks everybody for the correction last week too that I was talking about Kristoff and not Sven. If you weren't here, I can tell you later. You can correct me on this too. Guess what? The, the Great Commission. All the verbs are in the plural. 
What is plural and singular? I don't know. Something. Pronouns. All right. A little grammatical relief from the heaviness of what we're talking about. There you go. All of it is saying, y'all do this together. Y'all make disciples. Y'all baptize people. Y'all teach them to obey. I'm with y'all. Right? I don't know why they don't translate it like that. Sometimes these yous all just come across as like they're singular. And for us individualistic Americans, we just hear them like that. Right? But a, but a, a most literal translation from the Greek of all these verbs are y'all do this. Y'all do this. He's speaking to them together. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through is followed by Matthew 8-10 through where they actually go out and seek to live out the kingdom together. This is part of the reason why we read all of these Scriptures this morning. It's what do we see Jesus doing? He calls them at the beginning of this text, which we'll get to in the last point. If anyone wants to be my disciple, deny himself, come, take up his cross, come and follow me. And then what do they do? They go do all this life together in community on mission. And it brings all this stuff to the surface that does not come to the surface just when Jesus is having coffee with you. Alright? Jesus wants to have coffee with us, but Jesus wants to put us in community on mission so that He can conform us to His image. In verse 37, they're told to listen to Him. That does not, Jesus does not leave the Mount of Transfiguration and go and form a Bible college or a seminary. And I've benefited from both. What he does is he goes and he takes them on community on mission. They fail to heal this guy. I brought my kid to your disciples, but they couldn't do it. Right? So guess what? If you go pray for somebody's healing or exorcism and it doesn't work out, you're going to survive. It's happened before. Jesus wants you to go and then turn to him. We see in verses 40, 37 through 43, or 46 through 48. They're on their mission with Jesus. And what are these knuckleheads doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're arguing about who should be in charge. And you're like, well, I'd never argue about who's the greatest. Be in community for a while and see if you don't think you have better ideas than somebody else who's getting to share the ideas. That's just another form of, I could do this better than they could. Then, and Jesus brings before them a child. Then they cross another ministry and they're like, uh, Jesus, should we tell them to stop? And he's like, oh, if they're not against us, they're not for us. You're like, I would never do that. One, one Easter, we walked out of this gym and there was another church having a big, awesome Easter egg hunt for the neighborhood out there. Right? What comes up in your flesh? Y'all are probably more spiritual than me. Right? But it should be like, praise the Lord, right? But if you do discipleship on community, in community on mission, there's going to be times where you cross paths with other people who are doing other things. And your heart's going to have reactions and Jesus wants to speak to that. And then, to top it all off, they're wanting to do ministry in this Samaritan town. And what did James and John do when, say when they're rejected? Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, yeah, that's a great idea. It says He turns and rebukes them. Right? 
We're in good company, guys. But what does Jesus do in response to each of these things? Then He teaches them. He disciples them. He brings a child before Him and says, this is what greatness looks like. He rebukes them and says, remember, I'm going to the cross to die for the world. I'm not here to condemn it. I'm here to save it. Jesus works out their identity by training them on mission. Think about the beauty of a, of a team sport that you like. It could be soccer or it could be football or American football if that, if that confuses you. Now imagine just training someone to play one position. Like, I'm going to be the greatest receiver in the history of the world. And you got to train alone, don't you? you got to get in shape. you got to hit the weight room. you got to be able to run your route right. But just imagine if that was the end of it. I'm just an awesome receiver. Well, what about a quarterback throwing you the ball? What about a line to block? It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Committing your life to be a receiver without a team. And yet we can make discipleship like that. I'm just going to have my gift, my gifting, my skill, and my one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus, right? Good old boys, just me and Jesus, we got this thing figured out, right? And Jesus has said, this is a team sport. You're my body with parts. You're my family. What did this look like for Jesus? Discipleship for Him looked like Life alone, yes, we've talked about that, but it was not life to stay alone. We get a glimpse into one of Jesus' prayers in John 17 that shows us, guess what's happening a lot of times in Jesus' prayers? He's asking the Father, how can I love other people? And He's praying for His disciples and even those who are to come. So even when He's alone, He's remembering that He's a part of this bigger family. And then there's life on life. Jesus makes His life observable and accessible to other people. If we want to grow as Christians, that life on life that we talk about, we've got to let other people see us, good, bad, and the ugly. And then we've got to give them access to that, to speak into it. And then there's life in community. Go back to being patient. Okay, you can grow. You can be great at being patient. You know how you can be great at being patient? Is be by yourself. And some of you are like, I can't even do that. But you know what's really going to work? Your, get you in the gym of patience? Is commit your life to a group of people that you otherwise would not choose to be a part of were it not for Jesus. And there's going to be a challenge, but then there's going to be comfort. Because there's going to be those same people because of Jesus who are going to say, we still love you. You still belong. And you're still accepted. And you still matter. Even if you really were crazy the other day. And the Gospel seeps down into our hearts. And then we do life on mission together. That is, we get out like these disciples did and we try stuff and we fail at stuff. But in all this, there's exposure there's encouragement, and there's engagement. 
Life and community on G- like Jesus did is going to expose our hearts. It's going to bring stuff to the surface. Just so everybody knows, that's the plan. That does not mean life and community on mission is not working. That's what we're trying to do because that's what we see happening with Jesus. I mean, we're not trying to like come up with ways to make people be exposed. Just do it. It'll happen, right? But what we want to happen with that exposure is then there's this encouragement that comes with it because we remind one another of the gospel, but then there's this engagement in the disciple-making process like, let's figure out how to do this better. Let's always be reforming. Let's not be stagnant. Let's not be held in these strict confines. Let's follow Jesus. And then lastly, so we embrace our disciple identity by prioritizing the presence of Jesus in our life. We embrace our disciple identity through this purpose of fellowship. But the last one is for the position of freedom. So we're back to our our first verses. These are the classic verses on discipleship that are in all of the, at least synoptic, the first three Gospels. And that is, Jesus is called to deny ourselves, take up a cross and follow Him. But He follows that with these words, that whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. What we often miss in all of this about discipleship, and which will lead us to the Lord's table, is discipleship, the purpose of discipleship is your freedom. It is not to enslave you. It's to free you. But we are all to some degree on the spectrum some type of addict. I don't, that might be an overstatement. And so what, when Jesus calls us to freedom, it feels like that will kill me. Right? If you've ever been around an addict or somebody who's having to go through withdrawals, they're having to change how they, the very way they live, it's very hard, it's very painful. Oftentimes they have to be tied down and held down by friends. Maybe it's not that extreme, but when we hear all these things Jesus is calling in Luke chapter 9 and in the Great Commission, He's wanting to free us. It sounds like He's wanting to confine us and to torture us. But what He's wanting to do is to show us the life to the full that we were created to live, but we just don't want to believe it's possible anymore. There's probably some of you in here who've just resigned yourself that this just is how it is. And there's a cost to that that Jesus doesn't want you to live with. Dallas Willard said we talk a lot about the cost of discipleship, but we don't talk awful lot about the cost of non-discipleship. What's the cost of non-discipleship? Is you just cope with life and do the best you can like everybody else. Many people have likened this to a fish that was seeking to live on land. Let's just imagine a fish could live on land, but how is a fish going to be able to live on land? Little Mermaid notwithstanding. The fish is going to have to come up with different kind of contraptions to keep it alive, right? So we could imagine a fish with a little astronaut-type helmet 
We can imagine a fish getting various drugs pumped into their body so that they could cope with this, right? And just imagine that this fish then had all these fish children and for generations upon generations, all these fish are just living on the land and they're thinking this is just how it is. And they have no clue that there's freedom for them. And there's this big ocean and it's scary and it's deep and it's dark but it's what they were made for. You see, so oftentimes we separate the, the gospel from the kingdom. And if you read, just go read the gospels in the New Testament, even Paul, these things are together. The good news is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have entered the kingdom of God now. And discipleship is us learning to live as the free people that we are. It's a process. It means denying yourself. That doesn't need to be misunderstood. It doesn't mean not having a self. It means your old self. As some people call it, your false self. That you that you have created to live on land as a fish. That you that you've that image that you put forward that makes you feel safe, those self-protective strategies, those adaptations. And Jesus is like, you're going to have to deny that, but it's going to mean a death. And as Paul would say, it's going to mean a daily death. But it's the way to freedom. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, We're reminded not only of the bread and the cup that we take as one of these ordinances or sacraments, whichever word that you prefer, but it's connected to another one that Jesus says is the beginning of the discipleship process, and that's baptism. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism. What's going on in baptism? When Jesus goes into that Jordan in that wilderness, He is telling us that just like Israel of old was in bondage, was captive, and was enslaved, that God led them through the waters. And on the other side, He said to you, You are my children. You are free. You are free. That before the first commandment, first ten commandments is given in Exodus 20, He says, I have redeemed you and you are mine. That's where discipleship starts. That's where discipleship ends. And that's what holds us through it all. And as we come this morning and we take this bread and this cup, we remember that we are the free children of God. And now we commit to live our lives wholly as His disciples. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We pray now as we come to Your body broken into your blood shed that we would again taste and see our freedom and that we would dare to take one more step in our lives as your followers and we ask this in Jesus name Amen